be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider audience. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 12th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 12, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 5, episode 13, or what the German regionalization team named The Orchid's Curse. I'm your host, John. Some bureau business, I've been out and about again over at Creamed Corn in the Universe. It's an interview podcast where um, where the host, Colin, speaks about a particular character with a guest, and I happen to be the co-host that day. And um, it's episode number seven. It's all about Jacoby and his golden shovels. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good time. Colin has a really good way of just, um, you know, making you feel at home and... It's really easy to talk to him, and he's, you know, he's he's pretty good at uh, <laughs> at uh, knowing all the details too. So it it's kind of like, uh, I mean, honestly, it's a lot like this kind of show, except you know, just focused on one character for about an hour. And um, yeah, I had a good time. I'd love to come back, and uh, I hope you go to check it out again. Uh, the seventh episode uh, on Doctor Jacoby. Now back to the episode at hand. Episode 12 begins with Cooper discovering Audrey's note. Finally, Lucy leaves on a trip. Andy's a whole damn town. Mr. Pinkle sells Shelly a death trap for Leo. Judge Sternwood, for some reason, releases Leland Palmer on his own recognizance and declares Leo too incompetent to stand trial. Nadine comes home and breaks the refrigerator. And Ben Horn gets a large check from Tojimura and gets Cooper to be his bagman for getting his daughter back. And Donna strikes a deal with Harold Smith about Laura's diary, but she forces him to step outside and later brings Maddie into the mix to steal it while Donna's on her date, which is the action piece that parallels Cooper and Harry's invasion of One-Eyed Jacks, where Jean Renault gets away, Blackie is killed, and the lawmen get away safely with Audrey Horn, thanks to Hawk. As we'll sometimes say, a path is formed by laying one stone at a time, so watching it all the way through Season 3, what questions are we left with? How does delusion sculpt the rule of law in Twin Peaks? How does Lodge Space amplify delusion in Twin Peaks residence? And how do secret plans navigate the different levels of Twin Peaks? And before we go about answering any of those questions, we're going to start by looking into the production history. This is the first episode 
with zero writers or directors from season one. We've got we've got it written by Barry Pullman, and it's directed by Graham Clifford. Now, this would have been the second one without anybody from season one, except for that whole Stahl, Jerry Stahl debacle last episode. But, um, you know, this one comes off without a hitch as far as I'm concerned, as far as feeling. I mean, it feels like it's got continuity going. So uh, Pullman and Clifford did a great job with this. And just like just like last episode had uh, Todd Holland talking well about how the process of directing Twin Peaks worked, uh, Graham Clifford also had some really nice, uh, nice details from Reflections by Brad Dukes. He said, there was very little conversation such as, this is the way we do it. You were able to direct your episode the way you saw it and give it a little personal stamp. I got this feeling sometimes that David let the episodes dictate what was going to be coming in the future. It was very much a stream of mini-movies rather than the customary experience of directing an episode of a well-established series. And no one was there just doing their job. We were all there because we loved the series and wanted to be part of it. Now, you could tell Clifford was a huge fan, even if you didn't listen to anything that he said, because he included a ton of these hallmarks from the series, um, you know, all throughout the episode. You know, we've got all the transition shots look like postcards, you know, they're they're particularly gorgeous uh, takes on, you know, like uh, the the roadhouse. You know, you see it out, out outdoors in the day with the bang bang sign. Um We've got the Hurley house, you know, the that the gas farm has this noisy smokestack and it looks like a postcard for sure. Um, the, the double R focuses on its sign. Um, the Great Northern has a couple of shots. Uh, you know, there, there's one where it like pans from one side of the parking lot to the other and then focuses on the uh, on the Great Northern business sign. And um and then there's the opening scene all by itself. Um, you know, it starts with the Great Northern when we come up from credits. And, you know, there, there's this outside front shot of the parking lot and there's the sun almost over the trees. And it's a great transition shot. <clears throat> and then we uh, we go into Cooper's room and we focus on the furniture. There's a Native American statue. Uh, Cooper's got his gun and badge uh you know, then then we've got the the Diane recorder right there. Um, you know, Cooper's arm intrudes to turn off an alarm right there. But you know, next time we see him, he's got the hair colic back, like at the end of the uh, the the Red Room Dream. And you know, Cooper has the uh, the the duck call later on too, where he's uh, you know going burp, burp, or whatever, <laughs> however that sound works. Uh, but um, yeah, so there, there's a lot of details all throughout, um, just kind of referencing the old stuff in a in a good way, or the the you know the the comfortable stuff that you know would make us go, oh yeah. But in this opening scene, he says, you know, I woke up to chewing earplugs, so you know, a reference to the earplugs from last season too. Uh, you know, compared to a marshmallow. Um, you know, he does a callback really quick to his ribs from you know being shot. And you know he needs this extra fifteen minutes of rule uh, of uh, yogic discipline to um, you know get him to recover from that, and that helps explain that issue. And um, 
you know, then when he's saying, you know, Diane, I am now upside down, which is, you know, total classic kind of a Cooper delivery. That's when Audrey's note comes into focus. And, uh, you know, we get to see, you know, go north to Jack. So, you know, it's like all this stuff right up front to make us feel like, yes, this is Twin Peaks. And then, you know, we get the note that Audrey left him back in season one. Now, also in Reflections, we get how Clifford uh, felt about actually, you know, filming some of this episode. And uh, he absolutely loved the um, the Lara Flynn Boyle uh, reading of the, the skinny dipping entry from uh, from from the diary, uh, both hers and Laura's. And um, he said in Reflections. I remember at the time I thought, oh, my God, this is great. I love when I'm shooting something and what I'm watching just takes me out of the fact that I'm actually shooting. And I end up watching the monitor thinking I'm not filming. This is real. And I almost excuse me. And I almost forget to call cut. The scene was so well written, too. And with Angelo's hypnotic music. Great. And it turns out Clifford is one of the one of the. I'd, I'd say probably three main collaborators on Harold too. Um, Lenny Von Dolan, uh, who played Harold, uh, he was excited to work with Clifford because he loved the film uh, Francis. And um, yeah, he and Clifford worked really tightly together to, to build um, Harold's in-universe world. Clifford's point about that is he says... Quirky intensity was the key, mixed with pathos and compassion for his character. And part of that character actually got written in. Lenny Van Dolan basically said in Essential Wrapped in Plastic that he didn't believe that Harold would be attacking the girls with the trowel. So um, instead of having that kind of an action confrontation at the end of the episode, um, Van Dolan said that Harold would only do it to himself. So that's how we got the conclusion in this episode, which, you know, at the time of, a, you know, the, the, this 12 year old at the time who's <laughs> talking to you a little bit later uh, got scared by that one because, you know, CRTs, uh, uh, CRT TVs are a lot blurrier. And, you know, it's like we couldn't even see the little details like, you know, the, the little mark on the trowel on um <clears throat> on Harold's cheek beforehand or anything, you know, it's like we, we get to see it right then in this kind of hazy way. And, um, yeah, it was, it was like, you know, who in the world would do that to themselves? And, uh, (laughs) Harold actually was one of those things that I, um, that I remembered when I was, um, you know, having not, not exactly having bad dreams, but when I was letting Twin Peaks scare me, like he was actually in there for a little while with this. (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, as far as Barry Pullman goes, how he got involved with this, um, per Mark Frost in Reflections, he said, Barry Pullman was the one guy I hired cold. I read some stuff of his and I really liked him and he became a solid contributor to the show for, for uh, <clears throat> to the show for the time he was involved. And I worked with him again later. We've stayed friends over the years. And I can absolutely believe it. I mean, in the, you know, in this first arc of nine episodes in season two, um, you know, they, they hired three episodes or three writers to cover three episodes of this show. You know, Stahl was the no show. Um, likely his spot in the rotation actually moved on to Harley Payton's then wife, Trisha Brock, who, um, who went on to 
you know, later on, she turned into a director, even, you know, directing things as late as, you know, Veronica Mars. And I, I haven't checked if she's working since then, but, you know, um, she, she's got some staying power on the directing side. But at the time, she started out being a writer, probably because she needed to fill in some uh, some spots. And um, she's like, oh, yeah, I could write. Let's try it. <clears throat> we'll be talking about her later on. Um, and Scott Frost came in. He wrote one episode coming up, and uh, he only wrote one episode after that in the back half of season two, um, because probably he was focusing most on the uh, Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes book. And, um, you know, that came out toward the end of the middle of the season two. But then Pullman, he ended up writing three full episodes of the uh, the rest of season two, including the penultimate episode, episode 28. Uh, you know, setting up the finale. So, you know, he he was um, he was a fairly uh, trusted member of the, the community, even though he was a even though he was a freelance writer. You know, they, they trusted him with some some uh, some bulk here. And he did well adding things to the story, too. Um, and based on when this story was uh, when this script was finished, um you know, the, the script was completed around August 21st, which was weeks before the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer published. So I would say that um, the diary scene in this episode um, that, that Donna recounts about the skinny dipping, um, that had to be a retelling of Jennifer Lynch's words, you know, rather than the scene in the diary originating from Pullman's scene. But Pullman really made it his own here too, you know, turning it into turning it into Donna's story one hundred percent. You know, I mean that 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 final touch of that was the first time I fell in love. You know, it's like oh, it gives that that right kind of weight to it to to make it Donna's for sure. Now I said I'd talk a little bit about Tojimura, and I will because um, <laughs> Tojimura has a speaking scene this week, and uh, yeah. As a culture in 1990, um, appropriation wasn't really a discussed concept. You know, it's like we were just starting to come to terms with the fact that, um, you know, we, we um, were living on land that we took from the Native Americans. You know, that that's as, that's as close as we got at the time. And, you know, it's like we still didn't even talk about that too loudly. So, um you know the the fact that we're um you know we we've got a white actress taking on um you know stereotypes etc of of a japanese person eh, you know the, the um the the culture wasn't ready to talk about stuff like that and um you know i'm i'm not excusing it but you know i i, I will attempt to explain that you know this was not meant to be malicious about it in um in reflections by brad dukes um piper laurie said david called me at home and told me the plan of Catherine's disguise that no one was to know or and that no one was to know no cast or crew not even my family and gave me the choice of what kind of foreigner i would be i thought at that point a japanese businessman would be less predictable uh richard Bamer, uh, ben Horn. He he said we figured it out a day or two afterwards, and the and the gag was up. 
but she stayed in character the whole time. And Lori said that the hardest part for her was that she couldn't laugh when things were funny because that would break her prosthetics. Probably one of the best ways I can explain how this went over um, is by talking, um, by reading a quote from Mac Takano, who played Jonathan Kunigai. He said, I'm Japanese, but I was playing a Chinese character. I looked at the cast list, and there's this Japanese character with a Japanese actor's name next to it. They made a big fuss about it, and I had never heard of them. And you know, then he laughs. My uncle was a famous actor in Japan, and my parents lived in Japan at the time. I'd go back quite often, and I knew something weird was going on. We were shooting something, and Piper Laurie comes in with all this makeup and stuff, and it was like Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. He plays that Japanese man on the upper floor, and he's always complaining that there's too much noise. And then he laughs again. I wasn't insulted, but it was definitely weird. And from Mark Altman, uh, per Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, he, he actually put in there, Laurie did create an impressive turn as a Japanese businessman in the show's second year. So, I mean, that that's the kind of world <laughs> we're living in. And, um, you know, that you, you can't put it <laughs> any clearer as far as, like, what it was then and you know we'll we'll be talking about it over the you know a, as it comes up like you know like why this wasn't cool but you know again i'm just trying to explain where twin peaks was at when this decided to be included as far as an end result of the episode um this aired on saturday november 3rd it got 11.4 million viewers um so the slide of about a million less viewers per week continues here. Um, this time we're short 1.4 million from the weeks, yeah, from the weeks before um, 12.8 million. So you know there, there's there's this slide that's happening, and um, it's it's right there in the numbers, and it proves again that the shot in the arm of revealing the killer really saved the show from cancellation. Okay, so we've finished looking at what was happening at the time, and now we're going to look at it through David Lynch's eyes and in, in, um, in that 1993 time period when everything Twin Peaks was basically dead as a doornail, and this was kind of his, his way of um, <laughs> eulogizing it. In this Lug Lady intro, Margaret says, Sometimes nature plays tricks on us, and we imagine we are something other than what we truly are. Is this a key to life in general? Or the case of the two-headed schizophrenic? Both heads thought the other was following itself. Finally, when one head wasn't looking, the other shot the other right between the eyes and, of course, killed himself. So she says, you know, sometimes nature plays tricks on us. So nature and the supernatural within nature plays tricks on the letter of the law. You know, we've got um, we've got everybody treating Leland like a grieving father and Leo as an invalid. But, you know, that's only half of their realities. And the other half just isn't even discussed in the courtroom. Um, 
you know, the supernatural plays tricks on those who imagine they're something other than they truly are. And, you know, we've got Nadine being 18 and Harold being a shut-in. Um, and then, you know, the polarities of a person, you know, like, like what's going to happen when these two sides of things um, go head-to-head? Not anything good. You know, all this internal combustion is going to break apart as the want side takes too much and ends up hurting the side associated more with needs. And then you end up getting something like, you know, someone learning the ultimate secret, you know, the secret of knowing who killed you. And um, in Harold's case, it's himself. Now, before we go, before we go ahead, breaking down the episode as a whole, um, we are going to listen to some words from our fellow podcasters on the Ruminations Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. We are here to break down episode 12 in... um, in its major thematic ways, using everything all the way through all the books and all the episodes of Twin Peaks. I'm going to first look at how does delusion sculpt the rule of law in Twin Peaks? And, you know, okay, first of all, we've got Lodge Space already intruding in the town by influence of dreams, etc. Um you know, it's it's been influencing the story since episode one, where Sarah sees Bob while hugging Donna. And um, it's roundaboutly influencing the law enforcement side of things since Cooper's dream in episode two. But it's never influenced the letter of the law until Judge Sternwood arrives. So again, last episode, we talked about how... Um, you know, Sternwood understands the woods and that he's got this intuition like Cooper's. But in this episode, it goes way further. Um, you know, we the, there's a, a number of examples in these courtroom scenes that um, facts hold less value than the intuition. You know, we get the close-up of the gavel hitting the, hitting the, the, the block. And, um, you know, we get Leland pleading not guilty. He requests bail. And um, Daryl Lodwig, the um, the prosecutor, he basically says he wants to deny the bail. And, um, you know, he represents the facts. Um, you know, why why would you uh, <laughs> why would you deny the bail? Well, you know, uh, due to the severity of the crime, the premeditation and the observed instability. And I absolutely agree with all of that right there. And um you know, if if I were the judge, yeah, he wouldn't have bail. You know, that that should be enough info, like, easily. But we've got Sternwood, who wanted to share a glass with Leland after all things are over in Valhalla. Um, you know, I mean, he says that last episode. So, you know, he, uh, he chooses to believe Harry. And, um, <laughs> you know, Harry's, uh, Harry's explanation is um him just speaking for leland and you know it's like how in the world does this work he says uh that 
Leland is well-known, well-liked, a respected member of a strong family. His grandfather, Joshua, brought his family here. And um, no one knows what it's like to lose a daughter like that. So Harry's using Doc Hayward's um, explanation where um, where Cooper uh, where Cooper responds with Doctor Hayward, do you approve of murder? So, <laughs> you know, is, is that how defense works in Twin Peaks? Uh, I've been talking about it, where you know, looking away from things tends to make them not exist. But you know, the only other way that I could come up with that this works is because when Harry was speaking, it has Laura's theme in a flute arrangement and um you know <laughs> like it 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 boggles my mind when you look at it in a you know non-emotional way you know either either uh, either judge sternwood is respecting the way law is practiced in this town or he he is also kind of tacitly approving of a murder here um and um the other one who isn't, you know, Cooper here hasn't said anything either, and he doesn't say anything to Harry afterward. Um, so, in a way, Cooper is also tacitly approving of Jacques' murder. Um, so, do you approve of murder, Agent Cooper? Or does Cooper just approve of... Twin Peaks and the spell that it has over him, you know, um, though, I mean, it could be as simple as the fact that, you know, maybe he's just not in a position to judge because he's got Harry involved in this bookhouse boys scheme to skirt the law and rescue Audrey. And, you know, it's on the same day. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe Cooper wasn't interested in starting an argument and, uh, you know, the end justifies the means, maybe at least just this one. But I do find it wild that Harry, of all people, is the one vouching for Leland. Um, you know, like, how does he get to be the best bookhouse boy with an argument like that? You know, all all it basically points out is that the patriarchy of the bookhouse boys is on massive display. And, you know, maybe in 1990, when we weren't quite so sensitive to the whole patriarchy thing... Um, you know, maybe maybe this just flew by and like nobody was trying to make a statement about it. But boy, does it come out. So anyway, Sternwood's verdict plays out, you know, like, while while Andy's thinking about getting a back three quarters view um, sketch of Leland into the Gazette, which is funny. Um, yeah, we, we've got Sternwood saying based on pristine nature of his public reputation, you know, up until recently, as Daryl Lodwick pointed out. And respect for the law, <clears throat> the defendant is released on his own recognizance. Like, okay. <laughs> anyway, his terms are to um, have Leland remain in town, make his whereabouts known to Sheriff Truman on a regular basis. And a little bit later, we've got Leo's hearing where, um, you know, again, we've got Daryl Lodwig offering the facts and, uh, you know, he wants Leo on trial because the town needs to heal and it gives a resolution to the community. I mean, technically, that's a little less facts and a little bit more emotional argument. 
But, you know, the fact is, is that there are a lot of people out there who kind of need <laughs> a resolution to the Millfire. You know, the Millfire, among other things. But then we've got Mr. Racine on the other side. Uh, this is uh, the musician Van Dyke Parks, who I'm assuming, I'm assuming Lynch was a fan of. Um, but yeah, Mr. Racine is showing an EKG of the brain activity with diffuse brain damage. And he says, this individual cannot be tried because he cannot comprehend. So, I mean, it's factual, but he's also making this divide of Leo, you know, the, the two-headed schizophrenic kind of theme again. Um, this individual is not the same individual under trial, even though he's the same physical body. So, if this isn't the same Leo, I guess the question to comatose Leo is, the question is, where have you gone? So yeah, the Leo in this episode is the one who needs Mr. Pinkle to sell a contraption to Cousin Bobby and Shelly. Um, and yeah, <laughs> Bobby's on it with a shooting magazine, and Shelly is the only grown-up in the room. We've got, you know, Mr. Pinkle, are you going to install a ramp? Because that's probably all Leo actually needs. And, uh, you know, of course, that wasn't on Mr. Pinkle's mind. But um, but this machine is a death trap that doesn't even work. And, um, oh, God. And here's another thing that didn't age well. Um, you know, the you know sometimes you got to hit the hard. The machine is like a woman, we all say at the machine shop, says Mr. Pinkle, trying to be funny. Um, you know, since I'm talking about Tojimura and everything else, this is absolutely the wrong audience to be saying a line like that to, but, you know, I think that's part of the fun. Um, you know, the, the thing that makes you, um, almost laugh a little bit at the time, you know, but, you know, you got to figure, you know, one of these days, Alice bang, zoom to the moon, you know, the, uh, the Ralph Cramden line from the honeymooners, you know, that, that was like, everybody knew that line. Everybody, um, said the line you know it's like uh, it's a it's a way to get your way <laughs> but you know it, it's like um you know standard parlance of the day just like you know the fugitive references and talking about philip gerard as the one-armed man you know it's like there were just things that were said in at the time that you know it's it's basically funny but don't think about it too deeply okay you know, there, there's this cultural contract in 1990 to laugh off some of that scary shit. And um, a lot of people said it without considering its meaning. So it's just, you know, one more way to say why Tojimura was considered a reasonable character at the time. Now, even considering Leo is an invalid at the time, um, you know, we've got Shelly and Bobby going into another room. Um and, you know, Shelly asks, you know, it's like, Bobby, are we okay? You know, she's still trying to be the grown-up in the room. But, you know, then, of course, he goes in for a kiss, and then she gets into it, and then they leave Pinkle to his death trap. Uh, and, you know, it's like, in in the courtroom, everyone is looking the other way, too. And, um, you know, it's kind of up to a point. Now, back in the courtroom, before... Um, before Sternwood deliberates on Leo, he um he calls for a deliberation at the bar with Cooper and Harry. You know, Sid's making the three black Yukon sucker punches. And um, you know, Sternwood asks them, 
does the town want a trial or a lynching? And here he says, the town wants the right man brought to justice. <clears throat> so again, you know, the Leo that did this isn't the Leo we have anymore. And it ends up becoming one of those soft reboots we get from uh, from the beginning of the season when a lot of characters kind of shifted their directions. Except I don't think Eric Duray had any choice in this one. Anyway, Sternwood says he'll declare Leo too incompetent to stand trial and shipped home immediately when medically able. And then, you know, he says, Harry, you want to tell the little lady yourself? And, you know, we see Shelly receiving the news and she looks happy on the surface, but you can tell that she's worried because now she's really got to live with this. Now, based on Sternwood's verdicts, it's like, in this Twin Peaks, a person's guilt is entirely reliant on how others observe their mental state, not the evidence itself. So, you know, <laughs> they're, they're kind of reading the intention behind the evidence, which, you know, it works well up to a point, but you got to figure Judge Sternwood just absolutely 100% sentenced Maddie Ferguson to her fate in a couple episodes because Leo was not restrained until bail. You know, like he he could have been out of the picture for a couple episodes and kept Maddie safe. But, you know, this is how we do law in Twin Peaks. But it's interesting because after the deliberation happens, you know, he, he speaks to Cooper while Harry talks to Shelley. And, um, you know, he gets, um, you know, like, how long you been here? Uh, Twelve days. And, um, you know, you, you would think that Sternwood is the voice of reason based on, I'll advise you to keep your eye on the woods. The woods are wondrous here, but strange. And, you know, this rhymes with what Cooper says in um, Owl Cave, um, you know, like in the in the later part of the season where, you know, he says, uh, you know, both wonderful and strange. You know, so like he's um, he and Sternwood are definitely attached with the intuition. Um, but who knows? I mean, maybe they're both riding the same energy, too. And, um, you know, you've got you've got the roadhouse itself uh, that they're in. And the um, the sign only has one bang lit and we can hear the buzz of its electricity. Um, so, you know, it's possible that the negative frequency is strong and that Cooper and Sternwood are both resonating with it. Who knows? I mean, maybe that's uh Maybe that's some Bob feedback, you know, <laughs> making things happen too. Who knows? You could you could excuse it in any number of ways, but you know, between between the electricity and the sign uh, alluding to negative um, things happening, um, the fact that Laura's theme in flute was playing, you know, so we've got you know the music in the air, you know, it's like there there's a lot of stuff happening here, and. Um, you know, we've also got the wide shot of the room at the very beginning of these trials with the big, huge red stage curtains behind uh, Sid, Judge Sternwood and the stenographer. So, I mean, there's a lot of associations that there might be kind of red roominess afoot anyway. So beyond the possibility of influencing Judge Sternwood's judgment, um, 
we're we're basically on to the next question. How else does Lodge Space influence the residents of Twin Peaks? And I mean, sure, there's only one there's only one scene in this episode with Nadine, but Nadine Hurley is um one of my prime example number ones. Um so Nadine comes home and um, you know, she's greeted by James. And she's like, who are you? Which, you know, this is, I believe, the second time, or at least the, there there was that one time when she couldn't place James, um, like, around the funeral time. And um, this time, she just outright doesn't recognize her. Yeah, she straight up doesn't recognize James. And, um, you know, the, the stuff she is concerned about is, like, you know, where are mom and dad? And, you know, Big Ed goes, ooh, out of town. <laughs> Great delivery. Uh, <clears throat> Everett McGill absolutely understands this assignment, even though he could have had more in season two. He did a great job uh, playing off of Wendy Roby. So, yeah. Um, now, James has no idea this is coming, apparently. And um, Ed tells him, well, Dr. Doc Hayward said to roll with the punches. So we've got not Jacoby here because um, uh, Ed says, nah, he's in Hawaii recovering from that heart attack. You know, just basically explaining Russ Tamblin's absence. But because of because of the actor absence, we've got Doc Hayward also um, being happy to go along with this um, feed the delusion treatment plan. And before we can look into the ramifications of what that might mean for the mental health, et cetera, of the whole town, there's this sound in the kitchen. And then Nadine walks in with the fridge door saying, it just came up, it just came right off. And, uh, you know, then she reenacts the, the ripping off of it. And then like, she looks scary as hell here in Twin Peaks behind the scenes, uh, by Mark Altman, uh, Wendy Roby basically says it's everyone's dream. I get to be 18, have superhuman strength, and kiss boys. I think it has something to do with the adrenal glands and pumping adrenaline through her system. And um, Mark Frost in the same book, uh, you know, he basically has this laughing quote where he says, it's like she constantly thinks her child is under a car. And, you know, I mean, sure, the adrenaline definitely seems to be part of it, like scientifically speaking. You know, that that line about a wildcat that Doc Hayward talked about and the straps and everything. Um, but, like, where does that adrenaline come from and why? Um, and in addition to why, there's, um, you know, th this is more than just amnesia of, like, you know, 18 years or whatever. Or, or wait a minute. Um 14 uh, I, i'm trying to remember how to get to 35 from 18 on the fly uh. <laughs> anyway it's it's enough years where um where you can you can tell that like she's not the little brown mouse in high school anymore and, you know she she hasn't just gone back to the point where her trauma began she's basically rewriting her past now like you know she wants to join cheerleading and all this in Run Silent, Run Drapes, what Nadine's story teaches us about trauma loops, trauma healing, and trauma recovery, Emily Marinelli, uh, she she wrote this part. Uh, Nadine's drape runner patent may not have been accepted at first, but the very act of creating it signifies movement 
toward trauma healing. She is beginning to create new brain neuropathways outside of the trauma loops so that she can imagine a world that is quiet, contained, and safe. Healing for her looks like taking control of her living environment and making sense of what is otherwise very confusing and overwhelming to her. And then Marinelli continues with, um, you know, the silent drape runners represent uh, controlling chaotic environment or space, changing circumstances to organize the world around her, which is what I think she's beginning to do with this whole high school scenario, um, <clears throat> creating ease, safety, and containment, establishing a clear sense of self versus others, inside versus outside, but then we've got reinforcing boundaries and redefining personal agency. Um, that also applies here. Um, basically, what Emily saw about how Nadine was trying to take control with her um, with her drape runners, I think she's doing this internally within herself with her delusion. And, you know, be, because the the runners didn't fix her pain, and I mean, technically they weren't allowed to fix her pain either. So she tried to do that with the suicide attempt. And now she's still trying to get through trauma by creating this delusion around her, this, this whole world that only she can see, even though she's expressing it very clearly. And Emily also said, these are the mechanisms by which trauma healing occurs. Along with Nadine going back to the time when some of her trauma happened, high school, and getting a chance to relive these years, Nadine gets a quantum physics-like opportunity to alter the trauma loop sequence. And, you know, the, the one thing to really keep in mind with her is she really has gone back in time inside herself, you know, like through maybe a, uh, a random eight in smoke that came from an owl cave symbol, perhaps. And, um, <clears throat> you know, she's going back in time and recreating things the way she wants. But every single person around her, even though her internal is becoming external through her, it isn't actually happening. She hasn't actually gone back in time. So, um, you know, keep that in mind in, in terms of how you try thinking about Cooper going back in part 17 of season three. Because even though Cooper might be correcting it for himself, um, you know, all the events tend to still continue on. And, um, you know, that's why in Final Dossier, Leland still commits suicide um, around the same time that he would have died in the sheriff's station around episode 16. Um, and also it's a really good answer for Joel Bacco's question that he posed on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, uh, after Secret History came out, uh, where he, he pointed out that most time travel stories begin the same, but reach different outcomes. But here, different beginnings end in the same outcomes. Why is that? And it could be because only the internal parts of a person are becoming external and it's just up to the rest of the world trying to make sense of how that fits in with their own worlds all right well anyway that's enough about nadine right now um we're gonna move on to laura's absent presence and 
you know, I mean, I know I, I know I took that terminology from the Diane podcast, but it, it holds up because, um, even though I haven't been talking about her a lot, you know, her, the, that presence, that ghost-like feature that comes with being Laura Palmer, uh, is still kind of being imposed over the town, um, you know, thematically or otherwise. And, um, Laura's energy is definitely still influencing Maddie, um, you know, sure, she broke through uh, some of that at the end of episode 10 where, you know, she um, she's like, everybody thinks that I'm Laura, but I'm not. And, you know, like she has this um, this um, battle of selves. Um, I mean, you know, of course, it's in front of Leland, but, you know, she's um, she's trying to take back herself uh, from this town. But, you know, it never works the first time. You've got to put two coats on a on a golden shovel before you can dig out of whatever you're in. And you've got to have two realizations before you can really push your way through anything in Twin Peaks, it seems, before you can actually do the change you want. And, you know, next episode, she will decide to leave. And, you know, she'll, she'll really become herself. Um, you know, she tells James. And then the next episode after that, she tells her parents and then, I mean, uh, her, uh, her aunt and uncle. And apparently Leland believes her enough that it's time to do something about it, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. So self-discovery is a good pursuit, but in Twin Peaks, it's dangerous if you don't know quite what you're doing and where. But yeah, so Maddie is, is slowly but surely becoming less Laura. And then, um, we've got Donna who still seems to be influenced. Um, okay. From a, from a nuts and bolts point of view, she's basically dating another of Laura's boys. Um, she's still smoking and being reckless. And, um, you know, despite actually liking Harold, which she does, um, you know, his safety and even her own safety takes a big back seat from, you know, uh, getting back the diary. It's it's strange that, you know, it has to be that focused on the plot point. But, you know, I mean, that's that's TV for you. You know, every character has one particular part of the puzzle that they're pushing forward every day. And that happens to be Donna's. But it makes an interesting bit of her... <clears throat> excuse me. It makes a... It makes an interesting part of her own psychology to have that be the thing that she's most focused on. Now, as far as characters under this um, lodge space related influence, it seems like Harold Smith is probably the um, the one focused on the most here. So, I mean, sure. Um, you know, the, the first scene, he's introduced as a creeper. Um, you know, like he, he peeks through the blinds, um, Donna knocks at the door, Harold unlocks it and opens it. Um, now I will say Dar Donna's braided hair in that scene is absolutely amazing to me because that was the hairstyle. <laughs> like, you know, that, that was the thing that girls were wearing their hair, like the whole time. And like that, that always teleports me back every time. Um, and it's interesting that Donna's also wearing blue and purple here because blue is kind of like the, um, it almost seems like blue is the absence of, um, of the fire from Lodge Space, you know, like, um, it doesn't give you a want or a need. It's, it's kind of a grounded color. And, um, 
you know, purple is that balance color that they really lean into in season three. So it's interesting that Donna's wearing that today. You know, what she does is she brings the food with her and then, you know, Harold checks his food. He likes the smell and, you know, it, like he, he's all about controlling his environment. A lot like Nadine, but like here, it's kind of um, preying on the girl. And, you know, you know, he's drinking wine. And he's like, so what's behind those deep blue eyes today? Uh, so, yeah, but, but Donna's holding her own, possibly because of, you know, the Laura-like influence. But, you know, she comes up with this, um, this compromise plan between her and Harold. Uh, she says, I'll tell my life to you, part of your living novel, if you let me read Laura's diary. And, you know, Harold, he says, intriguing. I'll let you, I'll read it to you. And it mustn't physically leave this room, which she actually agrees to out loud. And then uh, Harold says, a bargain has been struck. So pretty much this whole episode is how Donna didn't actually care about that bargain one bit. You know, she turns the tables on him twice in this scene alone. She opens the, I mean, he opens the secret compartment where, um, where Laura's diary is. And, you know, Donna's, of course, watching that like a hawk, trying to figure it out from where she was. And she does start playing ball by, by his rules. You know, he gets a composition notebook out. He writes her name very meticulously, sits down all properly and stares at her and says, begin, you know, <laughs> like, oh boy, Harold, I don't know. But, you know, we get info right away. You know, she grew up right here in Twin Peaks. Her father delivered her, et cetera. Um, but, you know, then she basically turns it right around and says to Harold, where did you grow up? And, you know, the the whole thing about, I grew up in Boston. Really, I grew up in books. And, um, you know, the, the back and forth, you know, she says, there, there are things you can't get out of books. And he says, there are things you can't get anywhere, but we dream that they can be found in other people. So, you know, again, dream has to be brought up by somebody in every single episode. And this is at least one of those times. And, um, you know, it's interesting, like how there there are these worlds inside the pages um, that we kind of flesh out with our own brains. And reading really does kind of do what I think that, um, you know, the, the Red Room kind of stuff does to the people in the town. And just like the worlds that we create, just like Nadine, like everybody kind of has their own take on what the world is. And in Twin Peaks, the internal gets externalized, and sometimes we get a lot of clashing like that. And for some reason, Harold's world makes him stay inside this one apartment. And um, it's pretty telling how that might actually be a little bit more of, um, more of an externalized trauma or whatever it is. Um, when Donna grabs the diary and, you know, she's like, maybe our dreams are real. And then she snatches the diary like an imp and she says, my turn. And, you know, she's all playful about it. Like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to read it out here, maybe on the lawn. You know, why don't you read it with me? What's there to be afraid of? And, you know, like with the, um, with the confidence of a teenager, <laughs> she absolutely goes against any of his, uh, you know, medically decided on uh, health plans or whatever it is. And, um, you know, just crosses that one boundary she already just agreed to not crossing. And um, 
he actually does come out because he wants Laura's diary to main, you know, because, I mean, that diary is part of him now, according to Harold. And, you know, he's, um, he's actually going to chase after that before noticing necessarily that he was outside. And then of course, you know, the right hand's out, it begins to shake. It shakes all the way down the arm and, um, into him and like, you know, he convulses and he falls on the ground. And, you know, this is when Donna actually is genuinely upset by what she just did. Um, but even with that, she's still focused on getting the diary and she'll strong arm his mental health any old way she wants to still, even though she just learned this one lesson that even hurt her. So yeah, later on, you know, while Maddie's outside watching in the dark and, um, you know, with the frog sounds and everything, um, the, the secret heist plan is underway and, um, you know, we, we've got Donna already being inside that room talking about her diary entry, the, uh, the one about the skinny dipping. And, um, I know, I know I asked the question a few episodes ago, whether or not the, um, this episode could have been written first or whether the diary entry was written first by Jennifer Lynch. And, um, I'm assuming that being a Pullman script here, rather than like one of the main writers, um, that practically guarantees that the um you know they they took they took Jennifer Lynch's written diary entry and then repurposed it here rather than vice versa. And yeah, Larflin Boyle absolutely does a great job here. You know, she's totally swept up in this. Like you can tell she's in it, like she's visualizing it and she's like reliving it right there, right in front of Harold, it seems. You know, she even gets up to illustrate Laura's dance and, you know, possibly, possibly that's a, that's a Sherilyn Fenn impression. But, um, what, what it ends up being, um, outside of maybe why the actor made the choice, um, it becomes more evidence that music can sweep people up out of their current reality and into some other one. And, um, that really matches up with Lara Flynn Boyle's, um, like it, it, it's basically like this hypnotism effect that she does with her voice, you know, like she, uh, she just mesmerized everybody, including the director. And, um, you know, she ends it with, that was the first time I fell in love, which was absolutely not in the diary ending. And I'm giving Pullman some props on that one for like making that story, um, making that story Donna's own from the diary and like it's definitely not the laura pov even though the events are basically the same and you know after after donna says that she says that's all and then uh harold says that was beautiful donna and um there there's this slow ash off of a cigarette and then the the cigarette ash lands on the floor and it, it all just felt like everything kind of slowed down and got a little lodgy so at this point, they are both under the same kind of energy. And, um, you know, they're, they're talking about orchids and, you know, he's all scientific about it. And Donna's talking, you know, like, oh, it's, uh, you know, it sounds romantic. And, you know, then they share a kiss and, um, you know, he kisses her back right up until she reaches out and touches his face. And that was where it was too much for Harold. And he had to excuse himself and, you know, who knows? I'm, uh, 
I'm not going to hypothesize anything, but he was gone for a while. And um, he can't connect to people. You know, it's like he, he's he's in this apartment rather than the world. He's, um, you know, he, he can kind of kiss people, but, like, they can't kiss back. You know, it's like there, there's this thing with him where, like, he really is on a completely different path from everybody else. And, um, you know, it seems kind of Lodge-related to me. But anyway, it's more than just people... It's more than just people being um, being affected by the uh, supernatural weather in Twin Peaks. Um, there's also a lot of secret plans in this episode, and um, th- there's the the main question that I'm going to focus on here is how do these secret plans navigate the different levels of Twin Peaks? Because as David Lynch said on the trading cards, it's all about secrets. And I'm going to start out with the secret identities. Okay, so houses have secret identities in in a certain way. Um, Hawk learns this episode a few more details about the house that Leland described where Robertson lived. Um, yeah, the he he got he got good info from two retired school teachers. No memory of gray haired man. Uh, three pots of chamomile tea to find that out and. Uh, Please excuse me because he's really got to urinate. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> you know, yet again, um, Hawk continues to get clues that Leland's te- uh, Leland's thoughts about that house um, wasn't realistic. And, you know, it's possible that he really was seeing a lodge portal kind of thing where, um, you know, like we've got a Tremond and her grandson versus the Tremond that... Um, Donna brings Cooper to in episode 16. So it could be one of those kind of things where it's a lodge disguise on a place. But then we have, um, we have just like a real world deception plan here where, um, Lucy has disguised her destination. Um, you know, at the beginning of the episode, Harry's still there with a donut. You know, he's trying to get her out the door. You know, it's like two days in Tacoma with, uh, with her sister Gwen and Larry and their new baby. Um, that's where she says she's going. And, um, after she's gone, it turns out that, um, the can do girl that, um, was supposed to be coming to fill in the front desk probably didn't show up because next time we see the front desk, um, Andy's there and, you know, he gets good news. Uh, <laughs> you know, like they, they show the, the, you know, Lucy Moran nameplate and, uh, you know, there's a bunch of post-its and then they pan over and of course it's Andy there and he's buried in post-its and, um, you know, he's calling up his doctor and he's like, Siemens analysis, Brendan, Andy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we can hear the voice of the person on the other end of the phone basically explaining, you know, like, you know, like she was talking to an eight-year-old who knew nothing you know it's like oh yes that's very good yes yep uh, hmm, yep and uh, (laughs) just encouraging him as he understands that he is a whole damn town and woo (laughs) and uh you know harry walks past and you know he's happy for andy's happiness even though he doesn't know a thing about what's going on and um you know, it's like, that's all well and good to share a smile with, with Andy there. But, um, Andy wants somebody who really understands the situation to also, you know, be happy for him. 
So he calls the emergency number for Gwen and Larry that's left up there on a post-it, but it's for an abortion clinic, which completely sends Andy crestfallen. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that number wasn't there for Andy to find, you know, they set it up the, um, you know, it should have been there for a temp, a temp girl to be able to call Lucy directly. Um, but you know, sometimes the can do girls can't. And, um, <laughs> yeah, Lucy had every, every right, right in the world to worry about that. It turns out, <clears throat> but you know, maybe she should be a little bit more upfront about what she's doing. Um, if she's concerned about Andy learning about that, I don't know. Luckily, they don't dive into that too hard in future episodes. So um, I think Andy just rolled with it, apparently. Now, an accidental secret identity happened when Hank Hank Jennings took uh, Daryl Odwig's DA ID. And, um, you know, like he's uh, at the end of this episode after after uh, Cooper and and Truman and Hawk leave with Audrey Horn. um <clears throat> Hanks in the background outside of One Eye Jacks on the on a cell phone uh, with with Ben and um, you know he's saying gunfire Truman and Cooper are leaving with your daughter and you know right after he hangs up with Ben um, that's when he's grabbed from behind by Jean Renault who um, who decided not to kill him on the spot right then because of that DA uh, ID badge so um, yeah. It was an accidental secret identity for, you know, however many seconds it took for for that to straighten out. Now, here we've got Tojimura, uh, who is obviously a secret identity to everybody except possibly some viewers and possibly Jack Nance. Ben goes into his office. Uh, he gets a page. Mr. Tojimura is here. And, you know, then Tojimura enters with a male aide at, at uh, Tojimura's side. And um, her story says, Asian investment firm, superior offer for Ghostwood Project, commitment letter from Tokyo Banks, prospectus, and a taste. And the taste is a $5 million check. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Catherine's had this plan for a while. I mean, it's um, <clears throat> it's even more apparent when you, f when you see this... Um, this male aide she has is um, played by Derek Shimatsu, who is the same man who um, who uh, someone bowed to in the season one finale, who um, who went into the room next door to Cooper's. So he was part of the plan then, and it was a part of the plan before even the mill burned down. And basically this grift of hers that she's doing with the secret identity allows the land that she lost to Ben to enter her hands in a perfectly valid contractual businessy way via Tokyo banks. And, you know, honestly, it almost worked. You know, Jerry Horn vets, vets the, um, vets the banks and vets that offer, um, in Japan in the next couple episodes. And um, in episode 14, Ben was this close to actually signing straight to Tojimura, except that um, right before he did that was when Harry and, and uh, Cooper came in to arrest him for the questioning in, murder, in the murder of Laura Palmer. 
as racist as this whole disguise um is on the surface um as far as a plot point the disguise almost achieved exactly what it was meant to so as far as the secret plans themselves i mean the first one we've got is ben horn's plan to deliver cooper and the money for audrey so um you know there's this comedy routine of tojimura uh leaving after after that check um hank entering a little bit through the back door for quick words you know cooper's duck call um and um you know after that cooper arrives just in time for the call with jean and uh, ben tells him you cut it pretty close as if he's concerned about audrey and jean's initial plan actually has a handoff at a failed amusement park which is right out of a comic book as far as i can tell and um you know cooper basically just sits there he takes it all he's very quiet he takes the briefcase uh silently and walks out and the only words he says is right at the end he turns and says stay by a phone and continues to walk out why isn't he more interested in um you know figuring out specifics one he doesn't trust ben horn and two he's already got a different plan and this is cooper's secret plan that also needs to be discussed now at the beginning of the episode he he sees audrey's note finally and he does get confirmation that she was at one-eyed jacks so um when he first walks into the station and talks to harry i got the jump on them i know where audrey is and um and knowing about that detail, it makes me think that um, possibly this was already on Cooper's mind at the time when he was kind of dismissing uh, Leland's hearing. Y- you know, like, you know, Cooper, are you uh, condoning murder? That that kind of thought process um, is probably influenced by, by this revelation that he already has. And um, Chris Flackett in in his 25YL article, A Tangle of Misplaced Trust in Twin Peaks episode 12, Flaggett says, the retrieval of her letter taps quickly into Cooper's guilt at failing another woman he cares about. Dale Cooper's white knight syndrome is well established, and Audrey is certainly not immune to its consequences. The fact that the letter has been under his bed all that time undoubtedly eats at Cooper. It's lost time, and if Audrey gets seriously hurt or even killed during that period, I can imagine Cooper would never forgive himself. And that's an angle I really wasn't considering, but, I mean, Cooper does love rescuing ladies. And um, this is one where he feels like he should have done something better or differently. So, you know, we've got Cooper and Harry later analyzing the floor plan for their mission, you know, the, the floor plan of one eye jacks. And, um, and, you know, we've got a lot of plot happening in the background of like what actually would happen to Audrey. And, um, you know, it's like Blackie and John, they're, they're, uh, rigging his stabbing mechanism. And, um, you know, it's like, how are you gonna, how are you gonna do the girl? And, uh, he says, voila, and, uh, shows, shows blackie all the heroin apparatus now you know blackie (laughs) proves that she's an addict herself and you know takes one of those little hits you know the the packet of the heroin uh from from that little plate that he has after jean leaves the room and um 
you know, Jean goes over to where Nancy is, and uh, Nancy says that Audrey is in dreamland. And, um, you know, Jean plays plays with uh, Nancy's knife and her boot, and they kiss. And, um, yeah, it's, it's only a matter of time at this point before they give Audrey enough drugs to, um, you know, make her die after the handoff, I think is what the official plan is from those guys. But luckily, Cooper and Harry get there before uh, before Jean can administer that dose to Audrey. So outside One Eye Jacks, it's kind of lit in red, you know, red room coating. Um, and Owl hoots and catches Cooper's attention. And then, <laughs> I mean, this is this is just a style choice more than anything. But Harry grabs the balls of this um, of this guard twist. Puts a gag in the mouth, uh, tapes the tapes the gag into the mouth, uh, spins the guy around, and uses the guy's head to slam open the door. <laughs> Brutal, Harry. Good lord. Uh, and um, you know, oddly comical in the middle of a uh, action sequence. Now inside, there are the hallways with the white statues and the red and the red drapes all over. So this has to one hundred percent try to be recreating that red room in a physical way and you know what's happening the wants versus the needs um you know wants being disguised as needs where um you know they're they're the men and the the men and the hospitality girls are conducting business you know there's all this tension here too you know cooper tells harry to wait here so you know the guys have separated but then you know here uh, cooper comes right back and says dead end yeah <laughs> there are all these misdirections in this scene and it's really fun but while cooper eventually finds audrey harry sees the room with Je with john and blackie and um also sees cooper on that security tape where you know he's at the blackjack table and we've got Cooper creeping elsewhere, and he sees Nancy, grabs her, and says, "Would you, uh, would you take me to Audrey Horn, please?" And you know, she the the strangest part is that she actually does it. So Cooper's in this dark room. He throws Nancy to the floor like an afterthought. Um, you know, Nancy's trying to to do that thing. You know, it's like it wasn't it wasn't my idea. All that kind of stuff, trying to you know get out of her situation. Um, but, you know, of course, he's, uh, Cooper sees in the mirror that um, Nancy's trying to take a knife from her boot. It seems like, you know, Cooper has his eyes locked on Audrey once he finally sees her. And then, you know, she stirs um, and, you know, she starts saying, like, my prayers. And, um, yeah, Cooper says, I'm going to get you out of here. And, um, you know, just basically reaches behind him and grabs Nancy's hand without even looking back. Uh, he slugs her in the gut and um, and then heaves Audrey over his shoulder. And, you know, her, her legs are out in front and all that. And, uh, yeah, so Cooper's plan is so far working because he has he has gotten to Audrey before any worse has happened to her. And, um, you know, then there's Harry, who... Um, who sees Jean kiss Blackie, um, but then, you know, kills Blackie too by stabbing her during that kiss. Um, you know, Jean lowers her down and then, um, you know, he's got blood coming out of his mouth now too. He looks a lot like a vampire. And um, I wouldn't be shocked if that was kind of the angle they were going for with him. But um, Jean sees Harry through the, uh, 
through the same curtain that Harry's looking through and, um, you know, basically draws and shoots at Harry. Uh, Harry dodges, and then when he looks back, Jean is gone. Uh, so, you know, they head back to the exit, and, um, you know, the, one of the one of the guards, you know, has his gun drawn already and basically tells everybody to drop their guns. You know, who knows where that could have gone, except that uh, Hawk was there, and, you know, uh, the, the guy falls over because Hawk's knife is in his back. And, um, you know, Hawk says, good thing you fellas can't keep a secret. So Hawk's saying that, that the guys can't keep a secret. Secret plans literally rely on secrets. Um, you know, Cooper's plan only works because of help. That's actually kind of a wide theme of Twin Peaks, too. Help is always at hand. No matter how in the dark plans are kept, light always finds a way to shine through it. There's always a little bit of hope. Um, there's always a little bit of light. And this time it's in the form of Hawk paying attention to what's happening. And honestly, in this episode, James, too. And it's the only time we're ever going to see Hawk and James paralleled. You know, when James catches on, you know, he's going to help out next episode um, after the cliffhanger. But, you know, maybe James can feel the electricity sizzling in the double R sign. Or maybe he could just tell that Maddie's full of crap and... um you know, she's trying to be really evasive, and he's like, okay, something weird is going on. I need to find out what it is. Because, you know, Manny comes in, she's really evasive, she stares straight ahead, she orders a coffee, um, comes up with a really bad excuse because she wasn't expecting to see anybody there. After a little bit, he plunks down some money and just takes off after her. And how Hawk notices, this is when he gives some information on the one-armed man's whereabouts, the um the Robin's Nest Motel on Highway 9, and that no one has seen him the past couple of days. But he also found the syringe drug there, and that it had this deep smell. Again, kind of comparing it to the jar that we're going to see Margaret have in episode 29. But yeah, with secret plans, it's really hard not to give tells. And Maddie gave some to, J uh, to James, and um, Cooper and Harry gave some to Hawk. Now, as far as Donna's plan that Maddie got roped into, um, those two ladies are planning at home using a pencil drawing of of Harold's floor plan, kind of like how um, Coop and Harry are using a floor plan of One-Eyed Jacks later in a more official way. And um, while they're planning it out, Maddie asks Donna, I thought you liked this guy. And then uh, Donna says, I do. I mean, these these are basically the polarities to Donna's plan. You know, there's love and there's fear, um, just like season two is full of. Um, you know, next time we see Maddie, she's buying coffee and brushing off James. And then the next time we see her, she's in the dark with the frogs waiting for Donna to use her flashlight signal. And that seems dangerous all by itself, but she's doing it. Um, you know, is it a compulsion of of Laura's influence? Is it just respect for Laura? Like, is it, who knows exactly what it is, but like she and Donna are fully committed to this. You know, Donna, right after she kisses Harold and gets him so, so fired up that he needs to, to cool off somewhere. Um, Donna fumbles around for her flashlight in her bag and it seems to take forever, which was great for the tension. And, um, then, you know, she's um, she's trying to get Maddie's attention, uh, turning on and off the flashlight through the blinds. Um, that works. 
And then Maddie comes in and fumbles with the knob. And, um, you know, it seems to also take forever. And eventually Harold does come in when Maddie's uh, at the bookshelf. And, um, you know, <laughs> Donna just jumps like she's a cat. And he doesn't care that she jumped like that. You know, I mean, he's skittish. So I guess he thought that was fine. But then eventually the bookshelf does make a sound when Maddie opens it and Harold catches both of them. And, um, you know, this is when he gets the trowel and confronts them. And he says, are you looking for secrets? Is this what this is about? Well, maybe I can help you. Do you know what the ultimate secret is? The secret of knowing who killed you. And then he cuts his cheek while the girls look away and hold each other. Um, you know, as a 12-year-old watching on a fuzzy CRT uh, t television, it was fuzzy enough where you like you don't notice the little details like the the red from the trowel on his cheek a little bit before he actually cuts himself and um you know that that image stuck with me and you know like who is this guy this guy is crazy and um i was not happy to see him again either for a little while it's interesting to see how donna just completely derailed harold's life in this very episode and um another thing i noticed is in episode 14 at the diner booth um right before maddie gets killed i mean yeah before maddie gets killed um donna actually takes responsibility for harold's death and it's james who brushes it off as great as laura flynn boyle acted in this episode i absolutely agree that donna did not do right by harold in this episode and while this is the beginning of the end for harold this is absolutely the end for this episode, so we are at the sign-off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Ruminations of Red Rum and Tony's Tall Tales. And join all the hosts of Ruminations Radio Network on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com. And if you want to be part of a mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode 13, the 14th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. I wish you the best of luck.